0: All right, good morning, Mercy House. Welcome. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm going to bring you the word this morning. All right, we've got a lot to go through this morning, so I'm going to just jump into things. So, we are finishing up a two sermon short series on the power and the provision of God. Last week, we talked about the power of God uh, that as Israel, God's special chosen people, were rescued in this miraculous, this epic fashion. Uh, out of their slavery in Egypt, Israel got to see God's full power on display. So here was the world's most fierce economic and military power, and God just swatted them away like some gnats. And when Egypt was chasing Israel with their powerful horses and their chariots, God flushed them down the toilet, kind of literally in the Red Sea, and they sank like lead to the bottom of the water. And what we spent most of our time talking about last week was Israel's response after seeing God's power on display. See, they didn't pat themselves on the back. They didn't have a big parade to show how awesome they were, how, how powerful and impressive they were. They didn't even sit down to draw up a game plan, which honestly probably should have been what they were going to do. At least that's what they should do next. But no, <laughs> they stood on the shore, and after having witnessed this incredible, amazing power of God, they sang. They sang. They worshipped God. They sang the first song that's recorded in the Bible, the first worship song that we see in Scripture. And so we should ask, why? Well, it's because Israel not only saw this awesome and amazing power of God on display, they experienced it in a really personal, uh, intimate way. God's power is not just kind of the, the backdrop of our existence. God's power is a force that's used to specifically protect what is His and to destroy whatever opposes Him. And if we are God's people, it's to protect us as his people, Um, and and his powers used to destroy the sin and the death which separates us from him. In the opening lines of his worship song, Moses says in chapter 15, verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So those of us who have experienced the powerful rescue of God, we respond to that in worship, not just once, but for the rest of our lives and also into eternity. We're able to say, the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. And so last week, I tried to hammer down this point, that it's critical in the life of the believer, but also in the life of the church corporately, that we be centered around consistent worship of Jesus Christ. Without worship, we as individuals miss out on the joy-inducing realigning of our hearts when we worship to what is right and what is true. And without worship, we as a church will lose our purpose. As a church, we'll grow cold, we'll grow lifeless. See, as we continue on as a church through this transition, this should be seen as the worst-case scenario for us as a church. The worst case scenario is not that some people leave our church to go over onto greener pastures or that our bank account as a church runs dry or that we're going to really struggle and have to wrestle with trying to practice the unity that we have in Christ as a church body. The the worst case scenario for our church Mercy House is that we stop prioritizing the worship, the praise, and the exalting of Jesus Christ. And so we pray and we plead, God, let that not be for us as a church as we go through this transition. And so this morning, we'll continue following the story of Israel into chapter 16, and something to keep in mind is that Exodus tells a story of Israel's relationship with God, uh, which is meant to be symbolic of our relationship with God. How God interacts with Israel as a nation, it helps us understand how God interacts with us here today. And and what we'll see is that as Israel enters into a relationship with God, God begins working right away to take care of Israel, but then also to begin this process of being sanctified and being grown and matured as a people. And so as you follow along, God rescues Israel from Egypt in this miraculous way, and we have the first spontaneous worship session recorded in the Bible. Everyone's super amped, everyone's super hyped, until they turn and realize that what awaits them is not green pastures and paved roads, it's actually a wilderness, a desert, and the green pastures and the paved roads are literally on the other side of the sea that they just crossed over into, and you can imagine, they're like, uh, like... Are we where we're supposed to be right now? Did someone take a wrong turn? Like, this can't possibly be the way forward, but for Israel, it is. Israel would go on to spend not just a week in this desert, not just a few months, not a year in the desert. Israel would spend 40 years in the desert. And we complain about, like, one COVID year, right? So imagine 40 years of COVID. Think about that for a second. The Bible refers to the the to to desert this desert as the wilderness Uh, but they're essentially describing the same biome what it is is it's a region of uncultivated untamed uh land it's associated with a lack of human habitation it's desolate so these deserts tend to be hot dry the land is infertile translation it's not a place where you want to be right And this is not just a place like like it's a sunny day trip to the beach where you can kind of cool off by jumping into the ocean. We're talking about inescapable heat. There's no place to grow food. There's no place to go to to cool down. There's not like an ice cream stand or a vending machine where you can grab a vitamin water. Like, this is the desert. It is the barren desert. And as you hear about this, it's peculiar that God would rescue Israel from Egypt and then place them into a desert. It's strange. It's strange. But as with all hard, challenging, uncomfortable experiences in life, God uses the desert to grow and to mature His beloved Israel, to sanctify them and strengthen them, and really to teach them what it looks like to be in a relationship of trust with Him. Look at these opening verses, starting in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." So the people of Israel spend a couple of months wandering around in the desert and they get hungry, which is understandable. They've exhausted all of their supplies, which literally was what they were able to carry on their backs. But unfortunately, there's no Walmart, there's no Chick-fil-A for them to just run in and grab some food or replenish their supplies. They run out of food and they get hungry. But we need to pause for a second here because we need to look at how they actually respond to that place of hunger. Scripture tells us that they grumble at Moses and Aaron. Look, we've all grumbled. I bet a lot of us grumbled even this morning between the time that we opened our eyes and first woke up to the time that we've been here today. We may have grumbled. So what is grumbling? Well, I'll give you a definition. Grumbling is when you vocalize your desire for something or, or your frustration at something in an inappropriate way. Grumbling is when you need or want something, or or maybe when you don't want something and and you annoyingly complain about it. So, my two girls, God bless them, I love them so much. Uh, They do this all the time. They grumble all the time. One thing that they always grumble about is being hungry or thirsty, which, look, being hungry or thirsty is legitimate. So, don't look at me like I'm an evil parent who gets mad when their children ask for water and food. It's not like that. But instead, when they're hungry, they, they don't say, Father, can you please supply us with some water and some food to eat? Instead, they sit there and they'll go, I'm thirsty! Like literally, as I finished the sermon, that was one of the things that Chloe ran up to me and said. See, they grumble, and, and, and it's, it's, it's an inappropriate way to vocalize your desire or your need. And no, I'm not mocking my children. That's literally what they sound like. So if you come to my house, that's what you'll hear. They'll say, I have to go to the bathroom, which is really strange because Chloe can go to the bathroom by herself. So she grumbles, and then I say, all right, go, and she's like, all right, I'll go. Like, it's this strange place where she feels the need to inappropriately articulate her frustration and her need. See, this is what Israel is doing. They're turning to their leader Moses and, and, and his brother Aaron. And instead of saying, hey, guys, we ran out of food a little bit ago. We're all getting a little hangry right now. Can you maybe come up with a plan for us to start eating some food? But instead they go, we're hungry. Their grumbling isn't just about being hungry. No, they go on to say, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least then we'd have some food. But no, now we're in this hot desert, and you you brought us out here just to let us starve to death. The grumbling of Israel may not have that that whiny tone of a three-year-old, but it's inappropriate and disrespectful nonetheless. Now, why are we drilling down so much into grumbling this morning? The reason is because it's something that will continue to be a part of israel's automatic knee-jerk reaction whenever they are uncomfortable just like my two girls and i'm willing to bet just like some of us here today israel is about to spend another 39 years uh, and 10 months give or take in the desert and this definitely is not going to be the last time that they grumble but what you see as you follow israel's journey is that grumbling reveals israel's hard heart it showcases this inner place of sinfulness but it wasn't just israel it's not like something was messed up with them and not anybody else this is something that the early church struggled with as well along with us here today places like letter to the philippians in chapter 2 verse 14 paul says do all things without grumbling and james chapter 5 verse 9 says do not grumble against one another and then in 1 corinthians chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The Bible calls us to not grumble, and it's clear that God does not like grumbling. But why? Why doesn't God like grumbling? Is it just because it sounds annoying and it's like kind of irritating to God in the same way that it's irritating to us? The reason why God calls us not to grumble is because grumbling is unproductively critical and it destroys relationships. It's unproductively critical and it destroys relationships. See, when we grumble, we take whatever is making us uncomfortable or dissatisfied and and we use that kind of like as a weapon. Israel is hungry, and instead of doing something productive, like letting someone know, or maybe seeing how they could be a part of the solution and not just a continuation of the problem, what they do is they blame and they accuse Moses and his brother Aaron. They say, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. They're they're taking their uncomfortableness and they're blaming Moses and Aaron as if they purposely went through all the trouble of liberating Israel from Egypt to purposely let them starve in the wilderness. They're not acting in good faith. What they're doing is they're assuming the absolute worst in Aaron and Moses. Grumbling is unproductively critical and it's relationship destroying. When you take a step back and look at the big picture, it's actually a little ridiculous as is all of our grumbling. When our girls grumble about being hungry, what they're doing is they're assuming the worst about us as parents. They're implying that with their tone, that that we are indifferent to their needs or that we're negligent as parents. It has this edge of like, why are you starving us right now? Like, that's what it sounds like. They're asking, like, did you give birth to us and then raise us and then take care of us and then give us a place to live and then buy us scooters just to kill us now with hunger? Like, that's what's communicated when Chloe says, I'm hungry. Maybe you guys can't relate, but that's what it feels like and sounds like to me. We can know that it's absurd intellectually. We can know that grumbling is a little bit inappropriate, uh, but it doesn't feel like it when we're the ones grumbling. Because the truth is, is that grumbling usually comes from a place of genuine need or Discomfort. No one grumbles because they just had a delicious meal. You don't grumble because your paycheck was, like, larger than you thought it would be. We don't grumble when things are going well. We grumble when there's a real challenge, a real need, or a real hurt. When we don't get something we feel that we deserve. Or when we don't see something done that, that would be right to do. Or that we, we ourselves are disappointed because we don't get to do the things that we want to do. Maybe we don't get to go where we want to go. And so we inappropriately complain. We grumble. We grumble at our parents. We grumble at our kids. We grumble at our friends. We grumble at our spouses. We grumble at our professors. We grumble at any other Moses-like leader in our lives. And then we go on and grumble to the entire world on social media. The truth is, is when we grumble at anyone, what's happening is that we're, we're, we're grumbling at God in our heart of hearts. And you see this in the passage. The person who is sovereign and responsible for the provisioning and the portioning of everything we have or we don't have, when we grumble, no matter who it's to, there's a heart of it that goes directly at God. And so whether we directly or indirectly grumble at God, what we are saying in that is, God, why have you done this to me? Why have you let this happen to me? Why have you kept this from me? Are you trying to make me miserable, God? Are you trying to just ruin my life? When we grumble, it it might feel good. It, It might feel like we're kind of letting off some steam or maybe hitting a punching bag. But in reality, grumbling and complaining, it's unproductively critical toward other people and toward God. And what happens is that it it deteriorates both of those relationships between us and other people and between us and God. God hates grumbling because it's the exact opposite of what he calls us into, which is a a personal relationship of trust that involves communication, which leads to even deeper relationship with him. See, the opposite of grumbling at God is actually praying to God. Honest, productive conversation with God. God doesn't hate grumbling just because it sounds annoying. He hates grumbling because when we grumble at one another, we choose not to engage in productive ways. We assume the absolute worst in each other, and we create walls and division. We don't build relationships by grumbling and complaining. And in the same way, he hates it when we grumble at him because we choose not to trust him and to not talk to him, which is the thing that he's inviting us into. And what we do is we reject that. We put up walls. We create further distance between us and him. Grumbling is unproductively critical and relationship-destroying. So what's the alternative? Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you scripture calls us to humble ourselves and to cast our anxieties on him specifically because he cares for us god caring for his people is a big deal and it's the motivating factor that draws us into humble conversation with god God cares about Israel. So remember, God chose Israel. Israel is his special people whom he cares for, he protects, he defends. And as people of God, God cares about us. Despite what it may seem like, despite what it might feel like, and despite what it might even look like, God's heart and his motivation is to, not to, to try to kill you or to make you miserable or to ruin your life. And so here's my challenge to you, Mercy House. Don't grumble, but be humble and pray. I did not mean for that to rhyme, but that is what I'm challenging with this morning. Tough crowd this morning, huh? Not a peep from you. Don't grumble, but be humble and pray. See, there's never a shortage of things to grumble or complain about because there never seems to be a shortage of needs or desires that we have. There's never a shortage of things that we want, things that we want to happen my hope is that as we grow and mature as a church, that each of us would also be able to have the maturity to see the destructiveness of grumbling. Not to dismiss the needs and desires of our hearts when they aren't met, but to approach God and other people in, in healthy, edifying, humbling, relationship-building ways. And so, Mercy House, let us not accuse God for things that make us uncomfortable or sad or disappointed or upset. But also, this isn't a a call to just stuff things down and never address them. That is a whole other rabbit trail that leads to bitterness and resentment and depression and despair. But instead, bring them to God. Cast your anxieties on Him by humbling yourself and through prayer, which is just conversation with God, and lay them at God's feet. Because why? Because He cares for you. God invites us into a relationship that's founded on His love and His care for us, which beckons us to trust in Him. It requires a humility, for sure. We're surrendering what we think is best for us and trusting in His kingship and His lordship over us, and that requires humility. But, at the same time, this is an incredible perk of what it means to be God's people. We have access to a relationship with God where we can pray to Him. How different our lives, our world, our our church, our community would be if instead of grumbling, we sought to be humble and to pray and converse with God. Now, one way of knowing that God cares about us is seeing how He responds to Israel's grumbling. Look at verse four of chapter sixteen in Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am about to rain down from heaven for you. Sorry, rain bread down, rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, they, uh, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to the to all the people of Israel at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord For what are we that you grumble against us? And jump down to verse 10 what a sweet, gracious, tender response. God shows his care for Israel even though they grumbled, even though they're accusing God of saving them to Egypt only to kill them through starvation by providing for them exactly what they need. So you may have heard this story before of bread coming down from heaven, but I want to remind you like this is not a fairy tale, this is not a myth or a fable meant to just teach some sort of moral lesson. God miraculously rains down bread from the sky every single day for them to eat. Every morning they'd wake up and they'd see it all on the ground around their tents. And you may be asking, what is it? Well, Israel had the same question. Look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And so they wake up and they see it for the first time. And the first thing they say is, what is it? And Moses is like, that's the bread that God said that was going to rain down. And because they were being super creative, they called it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? But what was it like, right? That's your question. That's my question. What what did it look like? What did it taste like? Verse 31, if you jump down, it says, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That sounds pretty good. Translation It is a delicious, good loaf of bread. We see it talked about in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 28, verse 23. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. When something is called the bread of angels, it's good. <laughs> it is a good loaf of bread. It's bread, it's not going to taste bad. And what we're seeing in this passage this morning is God's provision for his people. And last week we talked about the power of God, and this morning we're seeing the provision of God. And what does this passage actually tell us about how God provides for his people? Well, as we look at Israel, as we look at this manna, we see it showing us three things. One, that the, that the provision of manna is sanctifying for Israel. Second, that it's sufficient for Israel. And third, that it is sacred for Israel. Sanctifying, sufficient and sacred. So first, the provision of manna is sanctifying. Sanctifying is another word that basically means being made holy, being made more like God and his perfection. You can also look at this like growing and maturing in your faith. And when God rescues us by his power, he doesn't just kind of let us wander back into the world that we came from. When God rescues us, he, he, he brings us into a relationship. And so that moment of rescue begins our walk with God. And that walk is through the deserts of life under the sun on this earth. And in that process, it is sanctifying us along the way until we arrive at heaven to be with him for all of eternity. Like, that's what it looks like to be in relationship with God. And Israel's experience of relying on God's provision in the desert wasn't just God punishing them or Him being cruel to them. It was teaching them all uh, that, that, that there are things to learn. Um, everything that we're talking about this morning, about not grumbling, about being in relationship of trust and being able to have communication with God through prayer. It was sanctifying them, and it was for their good, and it was growing them into what it means to be God's people. Moses would reflect on this later on. After the 40 years in the desert in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what, it, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus, just like Israel, will be continually tested and challenged out of God's love so that we would grow and experience the fullness of life, joy, and freedom in relationship with God. But this process is not automatic, it's not even very natural, it's often very uncomfortable. As Christians, I think that we need to remember this and understand this, that when we do face challenges, trials, and temptations, it's with the very specific purpose of sanctifying us. So it's not a trap. God never tempts us, but God does allow us to be tempted in order to face challenges so that we can learn what it means to walk in God's provision of strength and of grace, trusting in Him all the way. In relationship with Him, That's what it looks like. Israel's hard lesson of needing to trust in God's provision, it was for their good because it was teaching them how to live in this relationship with the God of the universe. Okay, well, if this is true, what lessons are they actually getting from this challenge? Well, first, it's to not grumble but to pray, which we already talked about, but it's also to learn that God's provision for them is sufficient. God's provision for them is sufficient Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. God gives them really simple instructions. Each morning, wake up, grab the manna you need for the day, for everybody in your house. On the sixth day, make sure you take a double portion so you can have a Sabbath or a day off of rest and worship of God. That's about it. Like, those are the basic instructions. Now, what's unique about this provision in the desert for Israel is that they don't have to work for it. Like, even for us today, you need to labor and to toil to put food on the table. At least someone in your family has to labor and toil to make sure that there's food on the table. For Israel, it was a miraculous provision for them. It was free. It it was a gracious gift that they didn't need to work for. But here's the challenging kicker to their lesson. God provided what they needed. So no more and no less. For Israel, this was inevitably hard, as I'm sure it would be for, all, for any of us. It's hard to be given food for just the day and then to wonder, is this going to come again tomorrow? And so we read that some of them didn't listen. And, and maybe more appropriately, some of them didn't trust in God. And they tried to hoard some extra but what happened when they did? You see this in verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So when they tried to hoard it, when they tried to keep some extra, just in case God didn't come through to provide for them the food that, that he promised he would for the next day, it would spoil and it would rot Israel was being sanctified and learning that God was a God of his word and that his provision would be sufficient for them. It would be perfectly enough for them. He, he wouldn't let them go hungry, but he also wouldn't let them squirrel away some manna to develop a little safety net or a little emergency fund over here. God was sanctifying Israel not just to look to God for their food, but teaching them a much bigger lesson of how they can trust God. The Christians in this room are going to learn and continue to be reminded that we can trust God to provide for our needs. But doing so means that we enter into a place of trusting in God to give us what, what we need and the timing and the portion that's actually best for us, which is sometimes standing in contrast to what we think we need or how much we think we need or when we think we need to have it. So when I want something, I'm usually pretty specific about it. I have a vision for my desire. So then what I'll do is I'll go onto Amazon Prime and I'll order five pounds of a specific coffee and it'll come the next day. Like there are parameters around how much I want, what I want, and when I'm going to get it. But when we enter into a relationship of trust with God, it's difficult. God is not just a butler that you can make a shopping list for. God's provision is always on His terms, for our good. And this is hard, Mercy House. This is hard. You see this being communicated even by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And instead of encouraging them to not, uh, sorry, instead of encouraging them to grumble and to complain when they need something, Jesus invites his disciples into a conversation with God the Father by praying like this. Look at verse 9 in chapter 6 of Matthew. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I think this immediately begs the question, is it a coincidence that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to communicate through prayer and that that prayer includes this humble request for daily bread? bread absolutely not like this is why i love the bible the bible is one story from the beginning to the end it has different authors across different time periods and different places but is telling one cohesive story from genesis all the way to revelation that's the beauty of god's word which allows us to treasure it to trust it knowing that it's consistent throughout and here's where you really need to pay close attention is that the lesson about God providing sufficiently, it's less about the things we have or the food that we eat or, 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 or anything that, 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 that is material in our world, and it's more about a relationship with God. What the story about manna is not telling us is that if we follow God, we're going to wake up with a loaf of angel bread on our lawn every morning. Like, that's not the moral of the story. It's it's not a story where the lesson is that if we just trust God, He's going to give us money, He's going to give us toys, He's going to give us any of the trinkets that we want. The core truth behind this passage, and you need to look and see and focus in on this because it's so important, the truth that God is wanting to teach us in this passage is that He Himself is sufficient. That in Him, we have all that we need. That being in relationship with our Creator gives our soul what it was made to feed on. It's not about acquiring material wealth or promises of riches or saying that Christians are never going to go hungry. No, it's, it's about the fact that when you are rescued from your sin and brought into a relationship with God, you have everything you need for all of eternity, period. That's the message of this passage. That's what Moses even said as he was reflecting back on the purpose of manna. We read this earlier, but look again, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It was never about bread. There's more to life than food, than wealth, than possessions. What Moses is getting at, what I'm trying to communicate here this morning, is that while we may think that our greatest need is food or shelter to keep us alive and to keep us safe, we have an even greater need than that. And that need is only met and found in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our last point for tonight. God's provision of manna is sanctifying for Israel. It's sufficient for Israel. And lastly here, it is sacred. It is sacred. Read these last verses with me in verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God tells Moses, I want you to take some of the manna, I want you to put it in a jar, and I want it to remind you of what you're learning here. Again, this ties back to the fact that this is not like a meaningless challenge for them. It's not like a trivial hardship. It had the purposeful point of sanctification for Israel, and God wanted them to always remember it. That manna was sacred, and it wasn't just sacred because it was a loaf of angel bread from heaven. It was sacred because it was a prophetic object lesson that would point forward it was foreshadowed the coming of Jesus and spoke to what Jesus would do for all of us. See in chapter six of of John, Jesus is talking to the crowds. And there's these crowds that are following and they're looking for a show out of Jesus. They they want to see miracles, they want to see signs, they want to see wonders. And they're telling him, you know what, we should only listen to you. We, we can only kind of give you legitimacy if you can prove with some sort of miracle or supernatural thing that we should listen to you. So let, let's see the show. And they're kind of egging him on. But in verse 31, this is what Jesus says. He says, um, our, I'm sorry, this is not Jesus. This is the crowd. They say to him, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying uh, Moses, one of our fathers, he, he was special. He made bread come out of heaven. And Jesus gives them a little bit of a history lesson in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. This is what we just read this morning in Exodus chapter 16. Moses and Aaron weren't the suppliers, excuse me, of this miraculous bread. It it was actually God who was writing it down. So if you were there, you'd be able to correct them and say, actually, it was God, not Moses and Aaron. Look at what Jesus says in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus reveals something incredibly unique here. He's saying the true bread of heaven is something that's super special. It gives life to the whole world. And they're like, that sounds awesome. Yeah, that that would be a good enough miracle. Give us that miraculous, life-giving wonder bread. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're tracking along with me, this is the point where we go, whoa, whoa. God in his beautiful and epic story writing is using the sanctification of Israel in the desert to set up one of the biggest revelations in the Bible. Like if this is your first time reading through Exodus chapter 16, You should be like, it's a little strange that bread is coming from heaven. Like, I know that God can do anything, but it's still a little strange and weird. You you should have that thought, because it's miraculous. It's outlandish, but you can kind of see, okay, it's teaching Israel a specific lesson. They're being sanctified in the desert. They're learning about how God kind of miraculously can, 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 can provide for them sufficiently, how they can trust him. But then as you read the Bible, you zoom ahead 1,500 years to when Jesus is walking on earth and he's letting them know and he's letting us know that that wasn't just my dad being a little weird and crazy having bread come from heaven. He did that to tease the fact that I, Jesus, am the ultimate bread of life that comes from heaven. Like Jesus was literally from heaven entering into the world to be for you and for I uh, what we need not just a loaf that we're going to eat and then get hungry again jesus says in verse 58 of chapter 6 your fathers ate the angel bread but they still died i have come so that whoever feeds on me whoever finds their sustenance in me will never die mercy house that is some incredible bread this is the ultimate provision from god it's not the manna that came from heaven The ultimate provision is not what we're going to eat for dinner tonight. It's not your paycheck or your car or your home or your TV. It's not your spouse. It's not your child. It's not landing that dream job or whatever trinket or toy you just want so desperately. Those are all gifts from God. And we could be thankful and we could be grateful for them. But the ultimate provision is that of Jesus Christ, the eternal bread of life. Here at Mercy House, we take communion every single week. And if you've ever been to our church or been to another church, you've probably seen it being done. And what happens is we take the bread and we break it. And this is symbolic of Jesus' last night on earth. When he takes the bread and he breaks it saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me jesus also communicates through this that it has so much more meaning than just a piece of dry matzah and some old juice here um We talked last week about our brokenness and our sin, which keeps us from God. What Jesus does is he enters into our world and takes that sin upon himself. And with that sin on him, he dies in our place as our substitution, not because uh, he deserved it, but because he loved us enough to die in our place. And this is the great and powerful rescue that we respond to and worship And so when Jesus breaks the bread and said, this is my body that's been broken for you, it's bringing the storyline of bread that is traced throughout the entire Bible to its narrative conclusion, that Jesus was broken on our behalf so that we would be able to find everything that we need in him, the true, the truest form of bread for life. If you're not a Christian, we're super glad that you're here, that you're listening along. Just know that this bread has been broken for you. The powerful rescue of God is available to you. The forgiveness of your sin, the invitation to have a relationship with Jesus is available to you. So receive that by faith this morning. And find the provisioning that your soul has been longing for. If that's what you want to do this morning, you wouldn't be the first. Come talk to us. There's people in the back with little lanyards. We'd love to pray for you, answer any questions you might have. We also have a page on our website. If you want to explore this more on your own, you can go to mercyhouse365.org respond. And there's resources on there for you to learn about what it means to be a Christian. And then a way for you to connect with someone from our church. Just ask questions or have a conversation. So I want to encourage you to do that. All right, I know this is a lot of bread talk, right? There's a lot of symbols that are used and what I'm going, uh, what I've been doing is really condensing what people have written entire dissertations on into about 30 minutes. But here's what I want you to take away from this, that God's provision invites us to trust him. God would go on to provide manna every single morning for Israel, six days a week for 40 years. Talk about faithfulness. What he was trying to do was to show Israel that he is faithful, that when he says he'll do something, he'll do it. The, and all of his promises are found yes and amen. That was the, the lyric to the song that we just sang. And so for us, the question is, what, what are we running to for our sustenance? What are we consuming to stay alive? But what do we run to when, when we are spiritually and emotionally exhausted, spiritually and emotionally hungry? Maybe we run to be with other people, or maybe we throw ourselves into our work, or maybe we actually eat physical food. Maybe we exercise. Maybe we run into leisure. Maybe we try to escape with entertainment or through shopping. But I think with with, with food, these are kind of like the empty carbs. They might fill our bellies in the moment, but there's no true sustenance in the things that are not God. Some of us are eating moldy bread to stay alive. So we binge ourselves on things that we intuitively know aren't filling us up. Things that we, we, we know are bad and even self-destructive. And so whatever we run to, it may not be inherently bad or sinful if it's outside of God, but what we are doing is we are rejecting the invitation to feast on the ultimate provision from God that will satisfy our hearts, our minds, and our souls. So this morning, Mercy House, feast on God. That's my exhortation to you. Feast on Him by reading His Word, by worshiping Him, by praying to Him. And let us together, as a church community, stop eating junk food and empty carbs and garbage and and feast on Jesus Christ, the the heavenly bread of eternal life that satisfies our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your great rescue in our lives. We thank you that we have access to you in a loving relationship, that you encourage us to communicate with you in prayer. Lord, would we see that for the value that it is and and take you up on that offer to cast all all of our anxieties on you? Lord, would we see the destructiveness of grumbling, but also the fruit and the joy of of humbly um, presenting our, our, our desires and frustrations and hurts at your feet. I pray for us as a church that together we would not lose sight of worshiping you, God. I pray this morning as we wrestle and struggle through your provisioning, God, we confess that sometimes it's frustrating, sometimes it's hurtful, when we don't get what we think we deserve or think what think we need. But Lord, we trust your provisioning. I pray that we would grow in our trust of your provisioning. We thank you, ultimately, that the greatest provision that you've given us is your Son. I pray that as we take communion now, as we wake up each morning this week, that that would be the true manna, the true bread of life that we feast on. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.